This week on Ballad to Talk About. We look at the... F- ah! Sorry. We no look worries. at the first... No, we look at the results, right? Yeah. Okay. Actually, that, that's how we should introduce it, actually. It's like, this week on Ballad to Talk About, we look at the... Ah! And then we go into the, the theme song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ballads to Talk About. It is Sunday the 13th of February 2022 and joining me as always from the other side of the world is my co-host Sam. Sam, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Do you have any plans? <laughs> I do not. No, do you? Uh, you know, me and work will be my Valentine's Day. So um, no, so it's but it's very <laughs> unhealthy relationship. But at least I don't have to pay jack up prices. So there you go. Well, that is always a benefit of not having plans. Well, on another completely different note, this week we'll be looking at two different sets of elections from, frankly, opposite ends of the world. Later on, we'll be delving into the results of the four by-elections held in the Australian states of New South Wales and discussing whether this will be a helpful gauge of this upcoming general election, which is tipped to be in May. But first... Before we talk about the Super Saturday in New South Wales, we'll be talking about last week's Costa Rica general election, where we saw a newly elected legislative assembly and a presidential election that rolls into a second round that will be held on April the 3rd. So Sam, as a good starting point, frankly, if you a sentence to describe what the second round of the presidential election will be, is that it's the battle of the exes, isn't it? It is indeed, because both of the candidates going into the second round in the presidential election in Costa Rica will be familiar names to Costa Ricans, because it will be a battle between the former president, Jose Maria Figueres, who is from the centrist National Liberation Party, and he'll be going up against the former finance minister, Rodrigo Chavez, who is from the Social Democratic Progress Party. And Figueres did top the first round with 27% of the vote, but failed to meet the 40% of the vote required to avoid a second round. And it will be the, only the fourth time in Costa Rican history that a second round will be required. But notably, it is now the third presidential election in a row that has gone to a second round. So I'm wondering whether it's a, a new trend that the second round actually will need to will need to be in place in Costa Rican presidential elections. Chern, just to start us off, a curiosity of this election is that both of these candidates, former President um, Figueres and former Finance Minister Rodrigo Chavez, come from parties with a social democratic tradition. And I thought it was interesting that both of these parties represented in the second round seem to be from a similar ideological perspective. So, Curious, Chern, why do you think this has happened? And is it typical in Costa Rica to have quite a centrist left-wing lean to its politics? Um, I think there's a, a tradition in Costa Rica for moderation, be it of the centre-left or the centre-right variety. But I think the bigger thing about why these candidates could seem to be, in this case, from both the centre-centre-left, is that something which defines a lot of politics in this region and in South America is that it's very personality-driven, not necessarily ideology-driven. So really, they're examining the candidacy of Jose Maria Figueres versus the candidacy of Rodrigo Chavez. And the parties that they 
represent, in this case, Chavez is closely associated with the PPSD and uh, Jose Maria Figueres, PLN, you know, they are just vehicles for them to achieve power. And the parties within that, the legislatures, are just the vehicles of the, that can help advance the president's agenda. So I, I think that's the first thing. And in this election, like in many other elections around South America and Latin America, it will be in the post-COVID shadow, I believe, where the economic response, particularly in Latin American countries like Costa Rica, has been pretty devastating. And so I wonder whether a much more centre-centre-left message of the government, more government intervention to help out us ordinary citizens would play better than a centre-right message of potentially cutting taxes and increasing spending. No, I think I think that's a great take. And I think it's important to say as well that the reason the current president, Carlos Alvarado Casada, is not represented in this race is because in Costa Rica they have a one-term limit. You can't have consecutive terms as president, but notably you can come back as president, which is what Figueres will be hoping to do on April the 3rd. Chen, you, you talked about how a lot of the time these parties tend to be vehicles for these candidates. Well, in this case, that is definitely true of Rodrigo Chavez because the Social Democratic Progress Party was only formed within the last two or three years. But interestingly, the National Liberation Party, which is Figueres' party in this election, is one of the oldest parties in Costa Rica. In fact, it first fought the 1953 election, which was the first election after the Costa Rican Civil War. So in between these two parties, aside from one being very new and one being quite a traditional party in Costa Rica, what are sort of the differences in approach of these two candidates? Well, it's very interesting because if you look at the background of Figueres and Chavez, they sort of share similar background in the sense that both have worked in international organizations. Jose Maria Figueres was a former trade, he spent time in government apart from being president, he's a former trade and agriculture minister, and notably was a former CEO of the World Economic Forum. Uh, Chavez himself was a former World Bank official. So they both have, funnily enough, both. Uh, been and worked for quite some period of time in Chavez's case at the international um, international organizations. But what is different very much is that Figueres is portraying himself as a pro-establishment candidate. And I think it's something in which he can't really run away from him being a former president. It would be quite odd for a former president to not be seen as the anti-establishment candidate. And in a country which has prized moderation really throughout this politics, you know, it is very much the it is very much still a very profitable lane to be in, despite other other countries in the region embracing populism. On the face of it, Chavez does, as you know, rail often railed against the traditional political class, but nonetheless, you know, he is not a populist. I believe, based on what his platform is, and certainly compared to some of the other uh, dictators within the region. So, to me, on the surface, at least. They, the big cleavage between them is one is a pro-establishment figure, you know, offering to tackle Costa Rica's most pressing issues, such as a 14% unemployment rate, high inflation, massive debt, you know, and corruption. But, uh, and Chavez is promising to, you know, rail, very much spend the first round railing against mm-hmm. um, the traditional political class, or he is offered to 
um, make progress and stuff like fiscal reform, pensions, green energy, for example, and pension standardization, fiscal reform and green energy. So that those are the campaign issues. But I think on the surface of least, I think the candidates do appear, uh, when you look into it, to be much more close to each other than one would necessarily mm. assume. Do you have any other differences, Sam? Well, Rodrigo Chavez, as I said, was finance minister, but he was finance minister under the government that is just leaving office now. He was finance minister for less than a year before falling out with the incumbent president, Carlos Alvarado Casada. And I thought it was interesting that Chavez comes from this Citizens Action Party background and has now become one of the fiercest critic of the Citizens Action Party, who suffered a horrendous loss, by the way, um, in last weekend's legislative election, losing all 14 seats and will not be represented at all in the Legislative Assembly when it meets later this year. And you talked about Chavez being anti-establishment and coming from that anti-corruption background. Why do you think it is that Chavez has been able to emerge as a strong candidate on this anti-corruption platform, whereas his former party, the Citizens Action Party, who have this similar anti-establishment, anti-corruption background, has not been able to make any inroads at all in terms of the legislative election or the presidential election? Well, you want to just give you a stat. They actually did, the Citizens Action Party, the outgoing president, did put in a candidate and he got 12,135 votes, 0.66%. So they didn't even crack 1% at the presidential level, which is quite a remarkable falling grace within a four-year term. I think why... Ch uh, why Chavez has been uh, not associated is that he only served in administration for less than a year and quite a public falling out over the issue of taxation. So therefore, he was not wrapped around with some of the weights of some of the governance weights of the Citizens Action Party because, frankly, you know, the governance record of the Citizens Action Party has been rather poor over the last four years. The, despite being an anti-corruption party, the party itself has been accused of corruption after um, accused of illegally gathering data. And some of the presidential advisors have been named under an infrastructure bribery case. So not very good, really. But if, particularly if you're set up to tackle anti-corruption, if you're then accused of being corrupt yourself. And secondly, I think we can closely examine its governance for economic performance. Its growth, Costa Rica's growth this year is tipped to be 3.5%, which theoretically in a normal situation sounds interesting. It sounds really good growth. But don't forget, you're comparing it against last year's growth, where growth would have been severely negative given it's a first quarter 2021, and a lot of countries would have been in recession or had much more strict COVID-19 curves. That rate of economic growth is slower than Panama, Dominican Republic and Jamaica within its own region. So I think that gives you an extent that whilst it seems impressive, it really isn't. And not only that, um, Alvarado negotiated an IMF deal, which was incredibly unpopular in Costa Rica, unsurprisingly, like many IMF deals in this region. He had to implement austerity and a 13% value-added tax, which as we know, value-added tax is a regressive tax, which tends to disproportionate impact the poor. So with such a governance record, with such a corruption scandal overcoming it, it frankly was, you know, for if Chavez had any presidential ambitions, the fact that he had a public falling out, the fact that 
you know, he will spend less than a year within administration meant that that message could still continue because they he could say that, look, even the anti-corruption party has been accused of corruption. And look, I only spent a year there and frankly had a very public falling out. So I am not associated with this party, despite the fact I work for them. No, I think that's a, a great point. And, and definitely, I think we've learned in quite a few elections over the last year that when anti-corruption parties come into government, and they sometimes come in on an incredibly large surge because of how passionate people feel about corruption on the back of lots of scandals, once they start becoming corrupt themselves, that power very quickly falls away. I think we saw this, I think Andre Babish learnt this in the Czech Republic with his ANL party. And another one, I think, although he didn't get into government, Slavy Trifonov in Bulgaria, who came in on an anti-corruption platform entirely with his There Is Such A People party, it then completely slipped away when, when they realised that behind the infrastructure of that organisation was a similar sort of corruption that they were explicitly set up to oppose. So... I think Citizens Action Party have learnt this lesson the same way in, in this election as well. And I, I, I think of another case, really, is that in a country which has come a lot into the headlines in recent year, days, which is Ukraine, because if you recall former President Petro Poroshenko, he was elected in 2014 in the first round with 55% of the vote. So he avoided the need for a runoff in, the, in, in, in 2014. Well, cycle one term later, he was comprehensively trounced by the current uh, Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and he only got 24% in the second round. So quite a remarkable fall from grace. And in the first round, you only had 14%. So it really shows you, I, I can't, that within a term, a lot can happen. And I think the, although the, the Citizens Action Party has suffered an even greater extent, in my opinion, there certainly is ample opportunity for voters to be very harsh if, uh, if they judge the president to be not performing very well within a single term. Do you think the fact that Costa Rican presidents are limited to one term in a row, do you think that has a, a large effect on government continuity and also on what you just hinted at there, which is that fortunes can transform quite quickly. Do you think without the incumbency effect, the impact on the party going into the election with a different candidate is even greater than it would have been if you were at the top of the ticket? Well, I think in some cases, look at Costa Rica, we're still in effect, the Costa Ricans are judging how the PAC is a citizens' action parties perform, and given the given its candidates secure less than one percent of the vote, there's unpopular president around. So indirectly, that is a signal about how it viewed the last couple mm-hmm. of years in Costa Rica. I I I often find it interesting that many countries in this region, like Chile, for example, have opted for a system where its presidents, a four, only a four year term, are unable to run for re election. But nonetheless, you still see many ex-presidents like Michelle Bachelet, Sebastian Pinera, getting a term out and then trying again once and often successful. I can see why in places like uh, Chile, you you want strong checks and balances, considering its quite violent history of authoritarianism within the country. But Costa Rica is not the same kettle of fish, really. So I'm struggling to really see that motivation for that. Do you have any other reasons why potentially Costa Rica adopted the system or any thoughts with not allowing an incumbent to run again in a country that doesn't have military dictatorship like Chile? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in this region, we often see these kind of constitutions formed because of those um, historical traditions. And I think Costa Rica, although it doesn't have the same um, history of military dictatorship, in the pre-Civil War days, it it was, um, it, I think people were wanting to avoid um, a repeat of the pre-Civil War days and preventing long-term incumbency is a nice way of, of ensuring constant turnover of power, even if even if it ends up with candidates from the same party, which often in Costa Rican history it has, um, it means that one person doesn't consolidate that power at the top of Costa Rican politics. And I think it's all part of this Latin American tradition to try and avoid long-term incumbency. Yeah, and and I, and, and I think as well is that uh, what is particularly notable is that the citizens since 2002, actually, uh, you know, if we look at the, the power has alternated between the PAC, P, Citizens Action Party and the PLN, which did a credible performance this time around. It's only in the last couple of years we've seen the rise of anti-corruption party, anti-establishment parties, which is not unique, really. So there has been in many other countries, despite the constant turnover at the top, somewhat of a two-party system that has somewhat decayed over the last couple of years. But nonetheless, I think mm-hmm. that kind of there's still some mm-hmm. institutional memory because it's still either each of these two parties. And even if, you know, PLN is one of the establishment parties in Costa Rica. So a return to the PLN presidency is frankly something Costa Rica to be very familiar with. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, even if even if the Citizens Action Party completely fades away, there are parties waiting in the wings who are also quite familiar to Costa Rican politics because prior to 2002, from about the 1980s, it was a straight battle between the National Liberation Party, the PLN, and the the Christian the Christian Unity Party as well, who whose candidate came very close to progressing into the second round. I think they ended up coming in in fourth place with 12% of the vote. And whilst that was about just under 5% away from where Chavez finished, it was quite a close-run race for the second slot moving into the second round of the presidential election. And I wonder if the Christian democratic tradition in Costa Rica, which, as I said, was provided a lot of the main opposition um, in the years before the Citizens Action Party, is quite fancying its chances at returning to that kind of position um, once this election is over as well. Yeah, by very means the right is not dead in this election. It just so happened that there was another, you know, a 17% bar is relatively low in Costa Rican terms. You know, the right is represented by the slightly more right to far right uh, New Republic Party, led by Fabricio Munez, who came fourth, and Linica Cavari, who is the Social Christian Unity Party, with 13%. She actually is the current vice president, actually, and seen as run a relatively clean term, actually, unlike many of, uh, unlike the presidential, the current presidential candidate. And actually, it's not for a very poor first debate performance. She was actually leading up to the point for second place. So we could have actually seen a centre-centre-right race in centre-left centre-right race, which is a traditional mm. race there. So nonetheless, you know, it also shows you one thing, like many other Western countries, campaigns matter, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, there's now a couple of extra months of campaigning for Figueres and Chavez to do. How do you expect, with with about a month and a half to go, how do you expect this election to pan out? Well, that's a, that's a million-dollar question. I mean, we have seen and we've been burned many times in South America where it does look that the first round there was a clear winner and the ideological positions of the 
of the candidates in the second, third, fourth, fifth would assume that it will be the front runner that will be favorite. But we actually saw the second place candidate that was selected. We think Peru, for example, Pedro Castillo versus uh, Keiko Fujimori. But nonetheless, I think what I, I would say at this stage is advantage Figueres, given this history. And I think as well, it could be a yeah. case of which candidate could address its weak points more. Because Chavez himself has been accused when at the World Bank or has faced allegations of sexual harassment during his time at the World Bank. And it is not lost on Figueres that, you know, his candidate is slightly flawed in that manner because he has part of his platform is specifically to promote social inclusion of women and ethnic minorities. And from uh, Figueres' case, what we can see is that um, he is facing some corruption scandals of the past, really. Um, he has been allegations received $900,000 in exchange. He has received that amount of money in exchange for influencing state contracts with a telecommunications company, but crucially never charged. So with this potentially hanging around him, will Chavez's anti-corruption message work? So if we got one candidate under cloud potential anti-corruption, one candidate under cloud sexual harassment, which could annoy female women. It could be a case of which do you hate the least that wins the next round, don't you think? Well, absolutely. Um, and, and the other fascinating aspect of this is that in third, fourth and fifth place in this election, you had almost 40% of the vote for centre-right or right-wing parties. Um, and, and, this, and the right-wing tradition of politics in Costa Rica is not represented in this second round at all. So I think it'll be fascinating to see where that pool of vote goes because it accounts for a lot more than either Figueres or Chavez managed to achieve in the first round. Indeed. And 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 on final note, to move before we move across to Australia, we should note that Boris Johnson had, had underwent a minor reshuffle of his cabinet earlier this week, with the chief move being that uh Jacob Rees Mogg was became the Minister for Brexit Opportunities and Government Efficiency, and there was a new leader of the house in the chief with Mark Spencer. Further details of all the cabinet moves can be found on our Twitter page at, at ballot underscore talk. So welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. This week in our main topic, we'll be moving to the state of New South Wales, where voters went to the polls in what was dubbed a Super Saturday series of state by-elections. That is the first major test of Premier Dominic Perrottet, but crucially signaled the start of a busy political year in Australia, especially for Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Counting is still continuing, and crucially, we're recording this podcast on, Saturday, on Sunday night in Australia, and they haven't counted most any poster votes, and only some of the pre-polls have come through. But as of now, here's the status of the four electorates. Bega, which is located on the south coast of, of New South Wales, will be a Labour gain with Dr. Michael Holland succeeding former New South Wales Liberal Cabinet Minister Andrew Constance. In Monero, which is next door, uh, we see Nicole Overall succeeding former New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barilaro in uh, retaining its seat for the Nationals. In Strathfield, which is sort of in Western Sydney, which is, we see Labour retain a series, Jason Yatsen Lee succeeding former New South Wales Labour leader Jody McKay, and Willoughby, with, which is the former seat of Premier Gladys Berejiklian, who sensationally resigned at the end of last year. The Liberals have retained it with its candidate Tim James 
succeeding her. So Sam, to start off with, one loss from the Liberals to Labour and Bigger and three retains for the parties that went into this election. Were these results expected? To be honest, it seems broadly about where I would expect these by-elections to pan out because we knew that the New South Wales coalition, the Liberal National Coalition, were going to be facing difficult battles. And, and to be honest, in their worst case scenario, it looked like they were potentially going to lose two of these seats to the Labour Party and they managed to hold on to Monaro. But I think roughly one Labour gain is about where we'd expect these elections to fall. I don't know if you agree, Chern. Yeah, I think these results are roughly what I expected. I think, and I think the first place to start is in Bigger, because although I wasn't surprised, given mm-hmm. the makeup of Bigger, which we'll go into, that, but the margin at this stage, it does surprise me. So to go, you give you a bit of, to give listeners a bit of an update. As of now, Michael Holland, the Labour candidate, has got... which is up 13% of the primary vote. Fiona Cotvoice, the Liberal candidate, has got 36.5%. That's down 12%. And spare a thought for Fiona Cotvoice. This is the third unsuccessful attempt to get into both federal and state parliament. Uh, Peter Hager, who is the Greens candidate, got 8% of the vote. That's down 2%. And Victor Hazel, Shooters, Fishers and Farmers, got 5.6%. That's up 2%. And others got 6%. And crucially on preferences... Labour has got 57.1%, that's a 7.1% margin, it's a 14% swing. Sam, this seat of Bega on the South Coast, it has never been gained by Labour since it was recreated in 1988. So it's been almost 30 years plus. So how on earth have they pulled off such, as we're going to discuss later, quite a huge swing from the Liberals to Labour? Yeah, I mean, most of most of my theories have come from more of a broader statewide picture of why Labour was favoured to gain at least one of these seats in, in how most people viewed this Super Saturday in New South Wales. But I think another important thing to say here is that Andrew Constance, the outgoing MP for Bega, was quite locally popular. He was he was a former um, former cabinet minister. He he'd served there since 2011, and unlike a lot of Gladys Berejiklian's cabinet, he wasn't particularly phased by any um, of the scandals and wasn't closely associated with Dominic Perrottet in terms of the unpopular relaxation of COVID restrictions. So, all in all, I think why we've seen this huge swing in terms of towards Labour has been because in previous elections gone by, I think Andrew Constance, Andrew Constance's personal appeal has outweighed any kind of demographic shifts that we would expect to see in these headline figures. Turning more towards the statewide reasons why Labour did quite well, it's as I hinted at there, I think the Covid restrictions plays a huge role here because Dominic Perrottet, when he took over from Gladys Berejiklian, Um, accelerated her roadmap out of COVID. He opened up New South Wales's borders in a way that throughout this entire pandemic, Australia has been very resistant to. They've they've had quite a unique response to COVID in, in the grand scheme of things. And I think what happened just then was that the Omicron variant of COVID-19 absolutely ripped through Australia and Dominic Perrottet's decision to open up New South Wales much earlier than planned was seen as a massive failure. But nonetheless, he's faced a huge amount of backlash for that COVID relaxation, leading to historic highs of COVID cases all across New South Wales. 
And I think that disappointment manifested itself within Bega on Saturday night. Yeah, I think on a, on a more seat-specific, let me just provide, add a few more details. So on the COVID front, it is also notable to note that the electorate of Bega is significantly older than the median electorate. And we know how all the voters have reacted to COVID in a much, will react much more positively to a health and safety approach first, like what Gladys Berry Jicklian had, rather than Dominic Parate's freedom and the economy first. So I don't think that helped Dominic Parate at all. Secondly, this area of Bega has been changing demographically over the last couple of years. It has seen many people potentially unhappy with the Canberra city life moving towards the South Coast for an alternative lifestyle. And like in America, when a lot of New York voters moved to Florida, they have brought their political values, which is very much more labor-leaning. So I'll give you an example. In 2020, most of Bega lies, it voters lie in the federal electorate of Eden Monero, which went to a by-election. And we actually saw that if you come, if you take the booths that were in the Bega electorate in 2020 in the by-election, Labour would have won the Bega electorate in that 2020 by-election. So rather, it's Andrew Constance has overperformed the naturally Labour lean mm. in this electorate. And this is somewhat a stronger reverting back to its political norm as a Labour scene. And thirdly, I don't think you can ignore Andrew Constance, as you said. He gained a lot of notoriety in the last couple of years as being very strong advocate for his region, particularly as this region was absolutely devastated by the Australian bushfires two years ago. And the government's response over the last two years at both state and federal level have been seen as lackluster at best. So I think these voters, particularly the fact that the bushfires led immediately to COVID lockdowns, would have left a lot of businesses and locals frustrated. And that could have meant that a lot of them were waiting with baseball bats, really, for Saturday night. Yeah, if anything, I think it shows a lot about how powerful incumbency can be in local election races, because as you pointed out there, with the demographic shifts almost being hidden by the by the popularity of Andrew Constance, then when you remove that incumbent and there's a 14% swing, it seems a lot more alarming than actually it should necessarily feel because of those demographic transformations. Do you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It does exacerbate that. Though I have to say one other caveat to that is that New South Wales has a tendency, particularly at by-elections, to swing very heavily against the government at hand. So 14% is actually seen as in the ballpark, actually, for New South Wales state <laughs> by-elections. So, but nonetheless, you know, repeating that feat, as we're going to be suspects and talking about at by-elections, but the general elections will be a completely different thing. But nonetheless, Sam, if we look at the magnitudes of swings, 14% is very different from the result we saw in next door Monero, isn't it? So what happened to the nationals there? Yeah, so we had, as you said at the start, Nicole Overall, the nationals candidate, um, gaining 47% of the vote, which is a drop of 5.4% from her predecessor. And the perennial Labour candidate, Bryce Wilson, got 33.8%, which is an increase of 7%. 
And then we saw a handful of votes as well for Catherine Moore of the Green Party and independent candidates. And then in the two-party preference, we actually saw the Nationals gain 55% of the vote versus Labour's 45%, which was a swing of just under 7%. So slightly less exaggerated than Bega. And would you say, would you think it's fair to say that it's a disappointment for Labour that the swing was capped um, at 7%, considering that on the best night, they were hoping to gain both of these seats. I think it's very interesting. So I think Monero, has also don't forget, has been severely impacted by the bushfires as well, though I suspect to a lesser extent than Bega. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the biggest booth in Monero is the city of Queenbian. And Queenbian is frankly an excerpt now of the Canberra suburbs, which is people who work for the public service in Canberra tend to live in Queenbian and vote in Monero. So public service people tend to vote Labour. And the biggest factor is the retirement of John Barillaro, the former New South Wales Deputy Premier and Nationals leader. He blew out the margin in 2019 to double digits, 11%. Whereas now at 55% to PP, we're actually, is Nationals have performed better than in the 2015 election. So mm. I think these, that, that particular last point, you've got lots of public servants, you've got an area which has had bushfire impact, you've had the retirement of a particularly local member who knew how to, for want of a better words, get a lot of money for his electorate. The fact that it swings only 6.6% is frankly a bit of a disappointment and would require looking to if I was Labour in an environment where both the Liberal, but the coalition, as you said, has um, not fared well at state and federal level. I wonder, Sam, and do you share my thoughts that potentially the call overrunning as a national rather than Liberal has explained why that swing was capped? Yeah, I think that potentially has something to say, um, particularly if you're viewing these by-elections as a backlash against Dominic Perrottet as an individual rather than the New South Wales government in its entirety. But if I were the Labour Party, as you said, I think Monaro is probably more of a disappointment in some ways because Labour has won this seat before, whereas they've never won bigger before. And even when... Um, even when Barilaro was winning it in the early days, as you suggested there, he was winning it quite narrowly. And yet the swing here is much more limited than Bega, and they didn't pick it up, even on what has widely been perceived to be a good night for the Labour Party. So I wonder if, is there an element of demographics going on here as well, but almost in the opposite direction? Hard to say, really, because like I said, the movement has been people from Canberra outwards into Monero, and to bigger. So I think it really warrant more explanation to give you an extent of how recent Labour held it. The, they last held it until 2011 when they lost power. They held it from 2003 to 2011 when they were in government. So seats like Monero is the seats that New South Wales Labour would need to build its path to a majority Labour government. And don't forget the context we're talking about is that the New South Wales Liberals at state level have been in and cup nationals have been in power since 2011, 11 years already. By the time they will fight the next election, they'll be 16 you know, years in power. You know, Dominic Parity will be looking for their fourth term in, they could be potentially 16, they're looking for 16 years in power. So it's getting a, this government is getting old. So 6% is at the lower end of where I thought that swing is going to be. Mm. 
I mean, I did some I did some looking into New South Wales by elections since the turn of the millennium, just to try and get a sense of where these kind of swings usually take place. And it's it's actually a lot more there's a, there's a lot more continuity than I expected because since 2000 there's been 36 by elections held in New South Wales. 11 of them have changed hands, but only six of them have changed hands between the coalition to Labour or Labour to the coalition and vice versa. So it's actually quite unusual for these these seats to be a straight swap. So for Bega to change hands, that's quite notable because it's the first time that's happened since 2014, when Newcastle and Charlestown both, um, both changed hands between the two opposition forces. But if if Monaro and Bigo were both to shift, that would have been a huge upset for for the for the Liberal National Coalition. And I wonder if if you're right in thinking that the national brand holds more clout than the Liberal brand at the moment in New South Wales. And crucially as well, if you look at New South Wales by-elections, the Newcastle and Charleston by-election was funny special circumstances, given that the Liberals didn't even bother fielding a candidate there, so they were automatically losses. But crucially as well. When the Liberals, before the Liberals won power in 2011, there, there was the Penrith by-election and the Reid by-election of a quite old Labour government, and both seats were gained on swings of 23 plus percent. So at 6%, I, it, it to me suggests that although, yes, you know, 14% is somewhat impressive, it's not at the government turnover view of the 20 plus percent mm-hmm. that we saw in Reed and Penry, which is a clear sign that that Labour government had run out of steam. So we're not quite there yet. And Sam, if you look at Strathfield, that is even worse news for the Labour Party in a way, isn't it? No, it, it really is because Strathfield has been um, a, a solid Labour seat for quite some time. And yet, in this election, we actually saw Labour's vote go down on a night that has widely been seen as as a good a good night for Labour, with yes, Jason Yatsen Lee um, losing three percent on Jodie McKay's twenty nineteen result, with Bridget Sarker of the Liberal Party staying pretty stagnant versus um, twenty nineteen on thirty eight percent. But the biggest problem here was Elizabeth Farrelly, who is an independent candidate, gained nearly 10% of the vote, which seems to have widely come from across the spectrum in terms of changes from 2019, but certainly didn't seem to help the Labour Party on a night that elsewhere was a good night for them. So although that they held it quite comfortably in the end, with quite minimal change on the two-party preference, do you think they'll be disappointed with this result? And if you were to try and pinpoint anything, what do you think is to blame for a relatively a relative underperformance here versus the other by-elections? Quickly, a thought, uh, just to let you know, Elizabeth Farrelly herself is a former Labour Party member, actually. So, But the problem in New South Wales, and this will really come when we talk about Willoughby, is that Unlike federally, this is an optional preferential voting system. In other words, when voters go to the polls for these New South Wales by-elections, they don't, if there are five candidates, they can only number one and cast a valid ballot. Federally, if there are only five candidates, you have to number every single box. So what happened, I suspect a lot of Elizabeth Farrelly voters, if particularly they came from the Labour side, which given her Labour background is slightly more likely, is that you voted one for Elizabeth Farrelly and just didn't bother to number the rest of your ballot. So when preferences get distrib- her preferences get distributed, they don't go back to the Labour Party. They just die within that. 
So as a result, that could explain why currently the swing or the two-party preferred level is going in the wrong way. It's actually a swing from the Labour Party to the Liberals of just over half a percentage point, really. So that's on Elizabeth Farrelly, the first point. The second point is on Bridget Saker as a candidate. She, unlike Jason Yatsen Lee, who lived on Sydney's North Shore, comes from the electorate of Strathfield. So she lives locally and she's got quite an inspiring story, motivated to go into politics and as a, as a road safety campaigner after her daughter was tragically killed there. So it's quite a good story. And she's often talked about how the Stratford community has rallied around her in a difficult times. And this is her wanting to give back. So she's been seen as quite a strong candidate. So I think the Liberals did find a good candidate there. And thirdly, we talk about how demographics have shifted in many Western countries, you know, Labour doing much more better in more affluent areas and in the South Coast as its voters have moved towards them at looking for alternative lifestyles. Here in Stratfield, Western Sydney, more ethnic minorities, relatively poorer areas is where I think the Liberals could have naturally done a lot better with the demographics shift. You know, we talk about Trump, for example, Trump voters, you know, doing more well about working class voters. I see the Liberals, particularly their candidates here, doing a lot more better in Strathfield. So I wonder underlying demographics are at play here. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's worth going straight on to talk about Willoughby because there was an independent problem here as well, wasn't there? Indeed. And just to quickly uh, give you the results is that Tim James, the Liberal candidate, has got 43.5 percentage points, which is down 13%. Larissa Penn is that independent in question with 32% of the vote and Lynn Savile with the Greens is our 12%, that's a 1% increase and others has got 12% of the vote. Now theoretically, like I said, because it's optional preferencing, 43.5% for the Liberals is somewhat dangerous territory actually for the Liberals because if we went back to the 2018 Wentworth by-election caused by the resignation of Malcolm Turnbull, then the can Liberal candidate Dave Sharma got 43% of the vote and independent Karen Phelps was able to chase her down, him down at 29% of the vote. But that won't take place here because optional preference, that means a lot of the ca other candidates other than Larissa Penn's preferences will exhaust. And crucially, the Greens candidate did not recommend preferences towards Larissa Penn. So it's very much like the her voters will exhaust rather than the preferences will flow to Larissa Penn. So I think Tim James will be home, although the margin on both the pref primary vote and on the two-party preferences would take quite a significant whack towards Gladys Berejiklian's uh, margin uh, in the last 2019 election, which was absolutely enormous. I reckon about 5 to 6% will be his margin. Hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting. Larissa Penn has quite a specific story and quite a local story in the... In the um, in the Willoughby seat because one of her key campaign pledges was that in, in alignment with the local council, she is lining up to oppose the Western Harbour Tunnel for not benefiting the local area and for posing climate problems as well, because there's quite a heavy climate aspect to, to Larissa Penn's campaign in Willoughby. But I wonder whether in combination with what happened in Strathfield as well, there's a wider story here to be told about independence because there has been a lot of a lot of talk and a lot of fear in coalition and labor circles in new south wales and more broadly moving into the general election that there will be a lot of independent candidates challenging um labor and coalition incumbents 
which could potentially mean that the results in the general election in May and in next year's New South Wales state elections become a lot more unpredictable because these votes could um, take votes away from the Coalition and Labour Party, but could also mean that these parties are dislodged when going into two-party preference as well. So do you think that's a fair story to be told, that we should keep an eye on independence in terms of shaking up these national and state-level races? Absolutely. Particularly in Willoughby itself, which is within the federal electorate of North Sydney, and this part of Sydney, the slightly more affluent part, is seeing a lot of what we call the Voices of Campaign, which is running a very progressively liberal part, centre-right platform, particularly focused on climate change. And their message they're getting across is that Scott Morrison and the government has not done enough in the climate change space. And I think in the last election, we began to saw one of their candidates, Zali Stegel in nearby Warringah, she was the Voices of candidate there. And I think they're trying to mimic that playbook in both Wentworth, which I last talked about, and in North Sydney. So I think the coalition, particularly in these heartland seats, they will face a specific threat from independence because I don't think they will vote Labour. You know, rusted on voters, of affluent voters will not vote Labour, but they would vote independence. So that is their biggest threat. From Labour's point of view, I think... The threat from independence is less obvious, but they do face a specific threat from the Greens, particularly in Melbourne. In The Melbourne seat for itself is held by the Greens leader, Adam Band. But in many of those progressive inner city seats, the challenge comes not from the, uh, from, from the independence, it comes from the Greens. The Labour's problem, or the thing that will hinge on Labour's success against the Greens, is how the Liberals, because don't forget at federal level, you have to direct preferences. If the Liberals decide to spite Labour and preference the Greens above Labour, Labour could be in big trouble there. Because unlike the Liberals, when they face independence, is that they know that all the other candidates will preference independence first over the Liberals. Against Labour versus Green contest, the Liberals have had a mixed record of preferencing Labour ahead of Greens first. And if they really want to get a Labour incumbent out, Greens ahead of Labour, and how the decision of the Liberals there, who can often get about a fifth of the vote, will decide whether how successful Labour will be in holding on to those seats versus the Greens. Yeah, and I think this is really interesting for people who listen to us from the UK and US, is that it's not necessarily as simple as um, whoever comes first in the seats, even though Australia on the surface shares a lot of similarities with these countries in being clearly a two-party or two-block um, electorate. But the machinations behind the scenes, once the first preference votes have been counted, play a huge role in determining the outcome of the election. And that's a lot of the reason why a lot of these Australian elections tend to be quite unpredictable until the final votes are cast, because because opinion polls on first-party preference don't really count for much until they're counted in the individual seats. Isn't that right, Chern? Yes, and for UK viewers, this is the system you couldn't have nearly ended up in, you know. <laughs> this is the alternative vote system, which is uh, what Nick Clegg was uh, proposing in that 2011 referendum. So you're right. But nonetheless, Sam, I think the, the thing about preferences is that going to the federal election, that is going to become even more crucial because... Some of the mechanisms we've seen in politics around the world is still playing out here in the fact that the primary vote for the both the Lib Labour Party and the coalition have been falling, 
over the last couple of years. If we take the 2007 election, which is the last time Labour had gone into power, and on current opinion polls, although we will talk about opinion polls when we preview the federal race, they, they seem to have a very good shout in. You know, in those in that election, both the Labour and coalition between them got 85% of the vote. In the 2019 federal election, which is the last election we had, both Labour and the Liberals combined had 75% of the vote, which is a six-point draw. But nonetheless, it does suggest that more preferences would be in play. And in this election, it does appear that the primary vote of both majors will fall even further lower, which means that more preferences will be important and how voters allocate them, despite whether the party suggestions or ignoring the party will be even more crucial in the upcoming election. And speaking of the election, upcoming elections, what implications do you think, Sam, would these results have for both Dominic Parity and Scott Morrison? Well, I'll start with the national picture with Scott Morrison um, in saying it, it almost is going to sound like a cop-out answer, but nonetheless, I think it rings true, is that Scott Morrison, I think, can take very little clues from these by-elections. We've talked about frequently with Australia how state politics and national politics work in very different circles. You can often read very little into state election politics for the national and vice versa. And I think these by-elections are telling that story as well. Nonetheless, um, I think there is one thing to be said of this for Dominic Perrottet, conversely, is that we've had very little gauge of public opinion in New South Wales. I think the last statewide opinion poll conducted, I read, was actually in November of 2021, so four months ago now nearly. And these by-elections are a nice gauge of where public opinion is with roughly a year out from the New South Wales state election. A lot could change in a year, but I think what these by-elections tell us on the whole is that Dominic Perrottet's approval rating is low and the Labour Party are well poised to pick up the 10 seats they require if they're challenging for the majority in New South Wales. And Bigger is one less of those seats that they would need to pick up and I think says a lot about how they're positioned looking into the, the coalition marginals, particularly after the disappointment of the Upper Hunter by-election which was held late last year because Labour were widely hoping to do quite well in that seat and that seat is definitely on the path needed for the Labour Party and Chris Minns to pick up um, majority control in New South Wales. So I think this by-election, this slew of by-election results has put, I think Chris Minns will be quite happy with because it shows that they're on track to do what they would need to do to win back control in New South Wales. Well, don't you think the Strathfield result will be a little concerning considering at the moment the swing is going the wrong way? I think it would be a little concerning, but considering the Strathfield is quite a firm Labour seat, I think they would be mildly concerned that they might be losing some ground in Labour heartland. But if Strathfield is anything to go by, they're not, they're, they're not losing enough for the seats to be overall in jeopardy. And what they really need to be doing is picking up coalition seats. And, both the, and all three of the results, really, in Willoughby, Monero and Bega, suggest that the coalition vote is at risk and Labour are well positioned to take some of that. I think, look, it's, my thoughts is that let's talk about the federal scene. I largely agree with you. You know, Scott Morrison, very difficult to imply state by-elections onto the federal scene. 
But I do point to the fact that the last New South Wales state election in 2019 was held in two months before the federal election took place. So actually, ironically, it's somewhat the same situation as by-elections, which are taking place three months before the federal election. So against that, the 2019 state New South Wales election was the first indicator that Labour was in trouble in New South Wales at that election. You know, the fact then Premier Gladys Berejiklian was returning for majority. So I think so Scott Morrison will be concerned because he needs to pick up seats in New South Wales. And he looked to at Eden Monero, which is where most of Bega and Monero is, as indications to potentially, you know, pick up. And in Gilmore, where they are fielding one Andrew Constance as the federal candidate there, you know, hope that some of his local popularity will help him win the seat. So that swing on the South Coast could be a little bit concerning from his point of view, so close to the federal election. But nonetheless, I think you're right. The link is a bit tenuous there. On the state level, I'm not so optimistic about Chris Min's chances of becoming Labour leader. I think he's still very much an unknown, and particularly the swings in Monero and Strathfield going the wrong way will be a little bit concerning from his perspective. So I, I see these results from a mixed bag for Labour more than anything else. It's still, the, the fight's not over. One year more to go. You know, there's a lot of politics could flow in between that. I think New South Wales has sent Dominic Parity a message that they're unhappy. But if, for example, the federal government changed hands in May from Liberal to Labour, I wonder if at state level, they might be less willing to switch from Liberal to Labour and copy that arrangement, really. So I think Dominic Parity could win one more term, but it's getting much more difficult. And... It's getting much more difficult because he is following in the footsteps of Gladys Berejiklian. The whole reason we're having the Willoughby by-election is because she resigned from Parliament. And she's still, I think, phenomenally popular with the people, really. And Dominic Perrottet, at so far, has found it very difficult to replicate that popularity. And so therefore, I think the swing against him will be even more personal, given the fact that they lost such a popular premier in Dominic Perrottet. So I think New mm. South Wales Labour is, will be heartened by these results. But nine seats is quite a lot to get them into majority government. I see it very much currently as somewhat a hung parliament is looking very much more like you've got three Greens, three Independents and three Shooters and Fishers Farmers currently. You know, Dominic Perrottet will survive to the next state election in 12 months time. But given the fact that you don't even know he only was 45 seats, you need 47 for majority because there are currently two ex-Liberal cabinet members there who will give them 47 but I think the race is definitely on into who forms government, but it's currently not as clear cut as I am, as I think compared to you. No, I'm, and I'm sure we'll be back talking about New South Wales next year, if not focusing on it quite heavily in the general election. But I think the thing to con constantly remember is that Gladys Berejiklian made history in 2019 for being the first um, liberal government to win three consecutive terms, to win a fourth would be a phenomenal achievement on the, on the part of um, Dominic Perrottet. So I wonder if the it's time factor will also become, regardless of what's going on in the overall preferences, um, further down the ballot in, in certain areas of New South Wales, whether just really winning a fourth term for the coalition is going to be quite a tough ask, whatever the national picture is. Well, Scott Morrison is trying to win a fourth term for his federal LNP government. And I'm sure, Sam, only time will tell to find out that outcome. And we'll be covering all of the latest Australian political developments at state and federal level over what will be a bumper 2022. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. 
Join us again next week when we'll be reviewing election results from the early regional elections in Castile and Leon in Spain. And as always, we will continue to bring up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world, including the German presidential election. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at Bella underscore talk. And do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han. And until next time, we will speak to you soon. <laughs>